a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Today's guest is Marina Goh, one of the very few women to chair a rugby league club, West Tigers. Uh, It's been an incredible trajectory for Marina. She's on uh, an array of boards too. She has quite a fascinating CV, but of course she started out in publishing. I know, she's gone from Dolly Magazine, for goodness sake, to West Tigers. Just an incredible amount of clout. Um, a A lot of work that she does behind the scenes as well. Yeah, she's powerful, but it's it's a gentle power. She's smart. That's the thing about Marina. She's smart. It's a very warm welcome, Marina. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to have you. Um, I wanted to actually go back to when you were growing up. Let, let's start. Yes. Let's be sequential. Go to the beginning. Go to the beginning. <laughs> um, and I wonder if you're one of those people who had in mind a kind of a career or a job type when you were younger, or was it something that uh, you fell into later on? When I was 16, I decided that I wanted to be the editor of Dolly. So I was very, very specific. Oh, wow. Yep. <laughs> very specific. The only reason that I became a journalist was because I wanted to be the editor of Dolly. So it was a magazine that I absolutely loved. You know, I was that reader, the, the ultimate reader that turned up on the day the magazine was on sale before the news agent opened, desperate to get the first copy. And, um, and I just fell in love with the magazine. And so that was my career goal. And then I just was determined to make it happen. Do you know, <laughs> I, I am so old. I actually remember really vividly the day that Dolly was first published oh, yeah. oh, wow. because I would have was at high school. I don't know if I was in, we called it first form or second form, not year seven and eight then. And uh, I can remember the excitement amongst oh. all the girls at school and we basically queued up to buy the first issue and we were all absolutely devoted readers. I think it was the first magazine certainly in Australia that was devoted to our age group, to young yeah, girls. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I think it was yeah. our sex education. Oh, yeah. totally. Dolly Doctor. Mm-hmm. It was. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was mine and that's why, you know, I wanted to I wanted to be the editor and I, and I wanted to continue what I saw as the empowerment of, of girls, you know, because <laughs> it did do that yes, for young did. women. Yeah. So did you go straight from school into the workforce? I did, but what I did is very strange. So because I have a Chinese father who was very – he decided that, you know, I would be the first ever female Prime Minister. So thankfully I had So a- you had slightly different trajectories <laughs> in your family. Yeah. So my dad, you know, I know that um, culturally, you know, s- some um, women and or girls of Asian descent have trouble with that because of the cultural bias towards boys. But, um, and there was certainly that in my family, but my dad really believed in me. And so, um, however, it meant that he wanted me to get a real job, so not become a journalist. And I, being you know a compliant daughter, which is very much the cultural thing, uh, my first job out of school was uh, a trainee in the money, uh, sorry, securities markets department of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Wow, you choose very easy yeah. jobs, don't you? <laughs> and so they put me through the first year of a business degree at UTS because um, I was it was like a cadetship. Yeah, and it was a really you know it was a prestigious kind of you know, post-school job. and Reserve so, bank, yeah, yeah. you betcha. <laughs> so when I said to my dad, because of course I wanted to be the editor of Dolly, you know, this wasn't the best job for me. Um, so I spent the whole year telling everybody that I wanted to become a journalist because I realised that was the pathway. And uh, when I finally was offered a cadetship, it broke my dad's heart because I, I was leaving this fantastic job that 
anyone else would have wanted. It kind um, of panned out, though. Panned out it? well. Yeah, panned yeah. out pretty well. <laughs> it, did, you know. it did. It did. But, you know, it took them a while before they realised. Because, of course, they didn't know, all that they knew about journalists was that they were alcoholics and they smoked a lot. And that was true when I first yeah. became a journalist, right? <laughs> I was right? going to say, they knew yeah. everything. <laughs> I, w- I went straight into newspapers and I sat between... I think they did it on purpose back in those days. They put, you know, the kind of young woman between two men who were drunk most of the time. You know, so <laughs> I was sitting between these two men who were police roundsmen and, um, you know, smoke billowing over my head because you could smoke in, in the office in those days. And so my parents were very, very concerned. <laughs> yeah. And there wouldn't have been many women uh, up through the ranks at that point either. No, no. Well, we had... We had uh, Mirror Woman, so we had the women's section. Oh, I remember Mirror yeah. Woman. You're yeah. taking me back. Yes, and so all the women worked there, right, including me. So I did a I did a few months in general news, and then they put me straight into Mirror Woman, and um, and any senior woman seemed to be in that department, but otherwise there were men in sport and news, and you know, not not many women in general. Can I just take you back to what you were saying about your dad, though? Because it strikes me how often I hear women who have been successful in the public sphere talk about how they had a father who thought they were fabulous and really, um, you know, gave them that sort of confidence. Is that how you felt coming from, you know, with your father's... I mean, I know he wanted you to be Prime Minister, not editor of Dolly, but nevertheless. (laughs) Well, the most important thing was that he believed in me and he believed... In, in my education, he wanted me to go to university and he, he wanted me to have a career. As much as I think it was conflicted for him too, though, because he also wanted me to get married young and, you know, have a husband that looked after me. So it was a conflicting thing. And my mother's Italian, so I had both cultures believing that I should, have, I should be married young with a husband who would take care of me. But at the same time, my dad really believed in in, you know, in a career for me, and I do believe that that drove me. Mm, mm. It's got an illustrious alumni, hasn't it, the the Dolly Yes. Title? Well, yeah. you know, I mean, Lisa Wilkinson was the editor when I was growing up. And um, and I actually wanted to be Lisa Wilkinson, you know. And she, Don't we all? Absolutely. I think we still want to be <laughs> yeah, Lisa Wilkinson. Yeah, we do. <laughs> um, and then Lisa was my, was my boss. So when I became the editor of Dolly, Lisa was editor-in-chief of Dolly and editor of Clio. So I couldn't believe my luck. And even in the interview process, I got down to the last two. I didn't actually get the job the first time around. I was – they – you know, they gave it to the internal candidate, which is fair enough. But Lisa and I hit it off and I knew that Lisa wanted me as the candidate and, you know, publisher wanted the other person because Lisa said to me, what will you do with Dolly? And I knew Dolly backwards and everything that I loved about it, of course, she loved about it because I loved her version. <laughs> so we were really, you know, we, we really clicked and um, we're on the same page. So yeah, very, very fortunate to have learnt from, you know, one of the best in the business, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And a fantastic example, isn't it, of women supporting other women, yeah. which oh, we, yeah. we tend to hear about all the other side of it. Uh, but in fact, yes. and I'd be interested to hear, did that continue in your career? Did you have other women who were supporters and role models? Yeah, absolutely. Um, once I became the editor of Dolly, you know, Pat Ingram at the time was the editor-in-chief of Cosmo. And, um, you know, Pat was a little bit older than me and she was far more experienced and she took me under her wing um, when I... I came back after maternity leave and I had a terrible maternity leave ex- you know, experience at ACP because those were those days. She took me under her wing and she really looked after me and made and helped me fight the internal fight. Um, but then as, you know, even, even when I um, decided I wanted to move into a board career, women like Elizabeth Proust and Sherry, I mean, they've, they've been incredible for me, mm. gave me a lot of advice, a lot of time. You know, they take the time to have coffees and lunches with me 
you know, it's wonderful. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we tend to be very scathing about women's magazines. We sneer at them and, Mm. you know, they're fluffy and useless. And yet... From what you're saying and what I remember of my own youth, they, they were actually incredibly important in the 70s and 80s in terms of giving girls and women an eye to the rest of the world and, of course, giving women opportunities mm, to run things and to make a mark and to get ahead and to get skills. Absolutely. And, in fact, it was Dolly that made me realise that I wanted to be on the management side of the business because up until then, you know, I just wanted to be the editor and it was great fun. And, you know, as the, ed- the editors have the best jobs in the world. They get taken to lunch, they get flown everywhere. I mean, I had a great life, but I had to, I was responsible in those days for the P&L because we didn't actually have this publisher system. So Richard Walsh was the managing director of ACP and the publisher and that was it. And then, and we all reported to him and he had about 50 editors. So I was really fortunate that I was responsible for how that business went and I cared enough. Um, and obviously I'd worked at the Reserve Bank, so I knew about numbers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Nothing's ever wasted. <laughs> Nothing's ever wasted. So it did give me an opportunity and I agree with you, Jane, that, you know, it's one of the, it was one of the few pathways to uh, a line management role um, in media for women. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes people kind of turn their nose down, you know, or they look down at me when I say, oh, you know, I came through the women's magazines route and I think, well, actually that's the reason why I'm able to do what I do now. Oh, and also what an incredibly competitive part of the market Yeah, very much My goodness. I mean, those are the titles that have kept publishing afloat in it really in recent times. And we know that, you know, mainstream media going going through very tough times. But gosh, if you succeed there, you've you've got real, you know, credentials. But isn't it interesting though that, until very recently, even though all of that is absolutely true, blokes would simply not have seen that as no. credentials. And yet, it, and, it, and I know we're leaping ahead here and we'll go back to the progression of your career, but it just struck me that the, the analogy there with how um, the internet kind of created this situation where women's voices started to be heard in a way yeah. they never had been before because, I mean, you would have experienced this, you've experienced this, I've experienced it. You put your story forward previously and say, here's the story about women. Oh, women have been done. No one wants to read about that. You know, we've, we ran that two months ago, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly you go on the internet and you can write whatever you like. Yeah. And what were the publications that took off? What is the market that everybody's, you know, desperate to get hold of? Oh, the one, the much despised women's magazine, you know, those readers. I do remember when I was finishing up at the Financial Review and writing my last corporate woman column and you were one of the first people. In fact, you got on to me before that was even. You got on to me very (laughs) fast. Your network is second to none. We wanted to, you know, I launched um, Women's Agenda. Mm. So I was a founding publisher. Um, Angela Priestley was the editor. And, And we, you know, we wanted to have the best publication. So we needed to have the best people and we went, Right, Catherine Fox, <laughs> right <laughs> onto her. Um, yeah, we were we wanted the best, you know. I mean, you don't do things by halves when you're a woman. But, you know? the, no. but the interesting thing is that it did, did legitimise, as you're saying, that whole area. And it's Completely. been fascinating. And, of course, the social media, let's, let's go there because we've already started to. Um, you wrote a really compelling article about a Me Too um, yes. <laughs> in, uh, experience that you had, which was clearly devastating. Mm. Um, you still didn't feel that you could name the person mm. involved, um, but it, it happened obviously during your career. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, but also mm. what you think of the Me Too campaign and the momentum that it has built up. Okay, well, I'll tell you a little bit about my, um, so, so my experience was um, kind of mid-career, I guess. Um, it wasn't in the media though, so that's one thing I need to clarify because a lot yeah. of people think that, yeah. you know, when I was a young journalist, um, but, it, but it wasn't in the media. It was um, in a, you know, in a board role. 
And um, and I guess the situation for me was because I'm in this board career now, and yes, there have been advances for women, but there are still some roadblocks. There are definitely still roadblocks. And, um, you know, you still need to know the right people. You still need, you know, as, as chairman have said to me, oh, we all talk. They all speak to each other. So if... If they speak highly of you, that's fantastic because you don't know what they're saying. If they don't speak highly of you, you also don't know. You just don't get the opportunities. Um, and one of the things that I'm really determined to do is make sure that I get the opportunity so I can give other women opportunities. Yeah. And, you know, so in making the decision to not yet, and I always say yet, name this person, I'm I'm kind of playing the long game. I'm trying to play the long game because sometimes you can cut off your nose to spite your face. And um, but you know, look. Having said that, all of the women that have stepped forward, it's been extraordinary. I'm you know I admire them so much that they've had the courage to do that. Um, it's a necessary movement. Um, I'm really supportive of it. I you know I I think Tracy Spicer should be prime minister. I mean the woman <laughs> yes. the woman has so much courage. She does. Um, and I you know I'm a friend of of Tracy's and I privately support her. I know it hasn't been easy for her. Um, and a lot of the women that step forward have had a lot of trouble and, you know, lack of support from everybody, not just from men. And so I, th- I think um, I'm inspired by this and, and um, you know, if anyone, I say to young women, you know, if you need me to help you, yeah, um, I will help you in any way. Um, so, yeah, I look, I'm very encouraged buy it and I encourage other women to step forward if they can. Um, The only thing that I say is that, you know, and the reason I wrote the article actually, which I should explain to you, is that I wrote the article in response to Craig McLaughlin's assertion that women are stepping forward uh, because they want attention. Mm. So I I wanted to demonstrate how difficult it is, even for someone like me who doesn't have as much to lose now, still have something to lose, but doesn't have as much to actually name the person who's bloody hard, right? So this is not just, um, oh, look at me, I want attention. None of those women step forward lightly. And that was the reason I wrote the article. Well, given the penalties women yes. face, oh. I mean, it's not that yeah. many years since that poor young woman at David Jones was, oh, yes. was pretty yes. much drummed out of the country. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Has, I understand not returned. So, I mean, I, I, I completely hear you. One of the other things, um, and obviously all of that is incredibly important, one of the other things I think has been fascinating, and a number of people in the workforce have said to me, and senior women, it's taken a little bit of that onus off us to always uh, explain why sexual harassment, but also bias and sexism actually exists. Yeah. It's as though we always had to prove the case. Mm. And I think there's something about collective action. You can say that when it's one or two. When it's thousands of women, yeah. it becomes a lot difficult. But yeah, more difficult. Well, that's right, to deny it, yes. absolutely. But I think there's something else going on too. Uh, it's never struck me that Me Too was about retribution. No. Uh, although I think that naming the perpetrator is important if a crime has been committed and, of course, if you want to protect other women from the same, you know, predator. But I do think that most women actually um, talk about their Me Too experience. I mean, I edited that book, Unbreakable, which Catherine contributed to, and no one in that book named the predators. Now, mostly it was because they weren't particularly important and powerful people and no one would have known who they were anyway, except people in their own lives and they would have been devastated. And what's the point of that? It's always struck me that really what it's about is women supporting each other and saying, you didn't do anything, you didn't behave badly, it's not what you wore or what you said or who you are or how you acted that made this thing happen to you. It was simply that you were in possession of a vagina and walking around and, you know, vulnerable and available. It's validation. It's validation, Mm. but it's something else too. 
When you don't speak, you take on the shame. When you speak, you put the shame back on the person it belongs to, which is the person who behaved badly. And what you also do is you shatter the silence, which protects perpetrators, which Mm. makes the world safer for those who would abuse their power and the world less safe for people who are vulnerable. And women are reversing that. And this is what seems to me that people are Mm. not understanding Uh, about Me Too. That's true. It's a real power shift, isn't it? Yeah. Talking of power shifts, Mm. um, I did want to just talk to (laughs) you. Um, in rather a jump, um, about the job. Nice segue, Catherine. Oh, I really like that. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Okay. Um, West Tigers, yes. because it's it's such an... You're the chair. It's mm-hmm. a rugby league club. Um, possibly not something you would have imagined yourself ending up in. No, when, no. Not, not when you're editor of Dolly. Dolly, no. yeah. It's, it's, no, I know right. there was plenty in between, but yeah. I'm really interested to hear about um, why you took that on, but mm-hmm. also what that's been like, because it is an incredibly masculine uh, environment in, yeah. in a whole number of ways. Yeah. So I, I took on the role, um, I had been on the board of Netball Australia for six years and, and I'm not a sports person at all. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, you're a really sporty person, you must, you know, not at all. I took on, I, I was appointed to the board of Netball Australia as their first ever independent director and they wanted somebody who had media and marketing skills and, you know, they had a great product, they just needed help to lift awareness, which, you know, I contributed to. So I was, you know, it was great. When I stepped down after my three terms, because of course there are so few women who have governance experience with sport, I I had my phone ringing constantly. And I was really sure that one of the things that I wanted to do next if I took another sports board was to find a sports board that required diversity. (laughs) So as you can imagine, when the rugby league came calling, um, I didn't imagine that that's where I would end up. But when they when they said, look, there's an opportunity um, on this board, we'd like you to interview for it. And I just thought, well, this has to be the ultimate. Um, and so I decided bravely to step forward because I knew that it would be a brave thing to do. Um, but I'm not afraid of, you know, taking a big step, as you know. And I was appointed and, um, and I just thought, you know, I'd be an independent director on the board of a rugby league club that had never had an independent director before. And there are not many independent directors in the game. Uh, and then first board meeting, we had to appoint a new chair because the entire board had changed for various reasons. Um, and they did all, they all kind of ganged up on me and <laughs> said, we want you to be the chair. And I was really reluctant. Um, however, my advice to women is always, if you get an opportunity to do something that is never offered to a woman, don't think twice to say yes and we'll work mm. it out later. So that's always my advice. And so I had to, I had to take my own advice. And, um, don't you hate that? Yeah. <laughs> I hate it when you realise that actually if I don't do this, I'm going to be a hypocrite. So I decided that I would just throw myself into it. And, uh, and so that's how it came to be. Um, and that was, that was a Sunday night. And I'll, I'll never forget how I realised my world had changed when at the time I was a CEO of private media and I would go to Melbourne for four days every week because head office was Melbourne, I was living in Sydney. And I would take the early flight out on a Monday morning. So it was, you know, it was announced really early because everything, you know, everything's leaked in rugby league world. And so by the time that I turned up at Sydney airport and I was walking towards my gate, there were people saying, there's that rugby league woman, there's that West Tigers woman. Wow. And I just thought, oh my God, my world has changed. <laughs> and of course, I stood out because there are not that many women no. um, in leadership roles in rugby league, which has been a lot of the problem and a lot of, and certainly a lot of the challenge during my time. I've been in, involved in the game now for three and a half years. So I'm in my fourth year as the chair. And um, it's been, my own club has been great, I have to say. I, 
you know, the players in the club are great. You know, there's a lot of respect towards me and the club's fantastic. The game itself, though, lots of opportunity for change. Um, and, you know, other other chairmen, I think, you know, it's difficult. There were two female chairs. So the chair of the, the, the Titans used to have a female chair. Um, so Rebecca and I would be, you know, two women with 14 men. And, um, and it, you know, it, it was, it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult for them to, uh, to to take on board your ideas, you know, I've actually worked over the over the years. I've actually had to to get the outcome that I want. I've actually had to seed ideas with you know men that have much more influence within the game, yeah. so that they seed my idea, so that my idea, so I get the outcome. Because I've just had to go. You know what? Maybe I just go for the outcome because otherwise I get nothing. Yeah, you know, it's ridiculous. So, do you think that? <laughs> To some extent, and it may be really well meant, and I'm not saying that the West Tigers have done this, but that to some extent, and hey, I'm with you, you take your opportunities where you find them and you don't worry about the reasons behind you getting it, but there is an element of tokenism where, oh, we need to change the culture, I know, we'll get a chick and stick her in a powerful position and then we'll just ignore her. Yep. Yep, and look, there's a lot of box ticking and it's not just rugby league, it's certainly the case in boards. Um, You know, I... I'm, I'm probably the quota position for almost every board I'm on, you know. I mean, apart from Energy Australia, good old Energy See Australia. See, yet another example. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> another example of why quotas are important and Absolutely. need to be everywhere. That's but, funny. you know, there are certainly I tick a box yeah. and I definitely ticked a box and the rugby league, you know, rugby league needed at the time or wanted at the time um, more women and, yes, you know, if we if we get more women involved, then that will change the culture. That's the thing we'll do. And it doesn't work like that. I mean, it's it's hard and, and you need at least two women, in fact, probably in our game more than that mm. in order to affect change. But, you know, I'm quite a vocal person, as you know. Um, I don't mind. I'm, I, I take the hits. I'm okay. Um, but sometimes I'm a lone voice, you know. I think that's the challenge. Um, sometimes I'll step out. I get I get attacked by some of the mass media and then there's crickets, right? There's an, I, don't, I don't feel a sense of support in the way that some of the other sectors, when there's a pile on of women, other women support them. I mm. don't feel that within my game. So I think that's the opportunity. The opportunity though, has it has shifted, hasn't it? So that period that you've been in that role, um, we've seen quite a change in women's sport in Australia. So yeah. yes, the boards probably have a lot further to go. And in fact, um, you know, the management ranks and so on. But, you know, we have codes, we have women's codes now. Yes, you know, and NFL, very successful. And yes. very successful. And the other thing is women are flocking to watch women playing I know. sport. That's quite a change. And a few years ago, the kind of perceived wisdom was women didn't want to play those codes and they didn't want to watch but other women play. Yeah. Haven't we been told that from yeah. everything we tried to do? I can remember a junior copywriter in an ad agency thinking, here's a little thing I could do. I could just cast women's voiceovers in ads instead of always being blokes. And I would get pushback from the blokes who said, oh, women, we've done research. Women won't listen to other women's voices. Like you're always told, oh, no, it's women themselves. But as soon as you actually t- make the change you find, oh, no, that was just a whole lot of cobblers you were being told. Yes, that's, right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, because somebody has to have the courage to make the change. And um, and I find that it's usually women. And that's why, as difficult as it is, it is good to have women in these roles for the first time uh, because, if you know, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, nothing changes. Nothing changes. And yeah. I was talking to Kate Jenkins, Sex Discrimination Commissioner, yeah. the other day, and she said, 
And one of those expressions that really annoys me is you can't be what you can't see. Mm. If women abided by that, they would never do anything yeah. because we have had so many women first yes, it's going right. into boards and management and, and into sport, for heaven's sake. Standing for president. And standing for president. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. And mm. being prime minister. Yes. 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 So we have to remember that. And it's it's an interesting one. Do you get many uh, women contact? I imagine you do, asking for your advice, your mm, all you the know, time. support. That, yeah. That's actually very draining, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I always try and say yes, though, because I feel I feel that if they've taken the... It's, it takes a lot of courage, I think, to ask a woman that, you know, is, is more senior, who you don't know very well, for advice. And so I always try my very best to have a coffee with as many of them as I can. Oh, you're good. So I'm tired all the time, but I actually feel, I, I feel like it's my giving back, you know, and I'm really committed to that. So I do, there, people always say to me, God, you do, I see you doing so many things, but I feel like I, I need to, because actually that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I want to be on boards. It's because I actually want to help other women. I really do want to, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I want to help change the companies as well. Um, but I think I, I, feel, I almost feel like I owe it to other women um, to help them because there are so many amazing women out there. Yeah. So I, many incredible women. I sometimes think one of the, the, the gifts in a way that women have is that every time one of us achieves something, you, for example, becoming mm. the chair of the West Tigers, you're not just doing it for your own self-aggrandizement no. or your enrichment. It's for something bigger than you. And that's a hell of a motivator. Yes, absolutely. And it's certainly my, you know, there's this talk around uh, people needing to have a purpose in life. And I feel like that's my purpose, right? Because <laughs> I'm really passionate about um, helping women succeed. And and it's not just about getting women on boards or women in leadership. It's about helping women achieve their dream, whatever mm. their goal is. And their goal doesn't have to be the same goal that we have, but helping them with their goal. So, you know, I mean, I get emails from women who've started a blog saying, you know, I've started this blog. I got one the other day. I was a West Tigers fan, right? So this, this is what happens to me. A man who's a West Tigers fan, he met me at some event, felt confident to send me a little note telling me his daughter has started a blog could I have a look at it? And so now I'm giving advice on how to and how to monetize this thing. Oh, but I, wow. you know, but I'm happy to do it because if she's successful, then then that's another successful woman. Once you're on a board, I was fascinated to read about Energy Australia's recent action on uh, the pay gap yes. and Catherine Channel. That's really pragmatic. And I just wonder how much influence the board has on that kind of, you know, and, and, and in fact, how that all works together. Because I think we do look a lot at tokenism, put a woman on and, yeah. you know, that's ticked the box. What I'm interested in and have been in all my career of reporting on women in the mm. business world is the effect that that can have. And, and what have Energy power. Australia done? So we closed the pay gap mm-hmm. completely. In your company? In our company, for, just for Energy Australia. Um, so I think the first step, honestly, is the CEO because that's the most critical position. Um, and this was before my time. I've only been on the board for less than a year. So Kath Tanner was appointed to be CEO around four years ago. And Kath is a woman of purpose. And so she started closing the pay gap immediately, but, but back in the day when she first started, the company wasn't, um, you know, as well run as it is today. Let's let's say she was brought in, you know, as women often are to fix uh, a problem child. And um, But, you know, it was important enough for her to start making a difference, closing the gap as, as the company could afford it at the time because the comp- company wasn't making money back then. Um, and so we finally got to a point, we had a really good year last year, um, the company's profitable and... Um, 
and she went to the board and said, you know, I, I want to be able to do this. And so you, what you need is both things. You need a, a CEO who cares about this. And so it really, you know, it's not a token conversation around the board table or a token conversation to the executive team. The CEO deeply believes this. She's got an executive team that deeply believes it too. They're all working towards the same thing. But then she also has the support of a board who also who also believes in this. And so it was a no-brainer for us as a board. Um, and obviously, you know, the CEO though has to make that recommendation. So, um it may well be, you know, I've been involved in other organisations where um, the board have to suggest that maybe this is something that the CEO should be looking at, um, but that wasn't the case in with Energy Australia. I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant organisation and my appointment um, took the company to 50%, uh, you know, representation on the board. So they're already a company that was way ahead of the game when it came to equality. But just on the theme of, you know, helping other women, what have been your worst moments? When, when did you have to really like feel like you were down and out and then manage to pull yourself up? Because we've all had them. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think one of the worst experiences I had, I mean, I've had a couple, you know, I've certainly had some terrible experiences in my career. Um, one of them was the maternity leave with my first child. And so I was, you know, I was the editor of Dolly. I had made a lot of money, increasingly each year for ACP and um, and I was treated so appallingly when I went, you know, I had my first child. And so I went from being, you know, a, a little mini star in the company to uh, to them saying to me, oh, you don't, don't, take it longer. You don't need to come back. And they talked to me about a really great job before I, um, you know, went on maternity leave and then that job disappeared and all went to somebody else who was less experienced when I came back. They virtually put me in a cupboard. You know, I was in special projects and we all know what that means, right? <laughs> it's like, right, yeah. the exit, yeah. 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 Um, and that's when, you know, that's when Pat Ingram took me under her wing and said, look, you know, come and work with me and we'll try and make this right. But, you know, I went from being the editor and quite independent running a P&L to, to being number two to Pat on, you know, on another magazine. And that's because I had a baby. It was the only thing that changed. So I got out of that company as quickly as I could because I realised that my career was not going to progress anymore. And I think, you know, I thank, thankfully I had the courage to leave. That's that's what I can say. Now, I did want to ask you because, um, gosh, we talk a lot in, in a lot of platitudes about advice for women, but I, and I am not suggesting your book was like that, but I'm really interested in, in what the response was to Breakthrough uh, yeah. 20 Success strategy, yeah. Strategies for Female Leaders. What sort of response did you get to that? And are there particular areas that yes. struck a chord? very specifically, yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I should start off by saying I did not want to write a book at all. And I was... Um, a publisher, a woman who I'd known for a while because her son and my son went to school together, approached me and said, I want you to write this book. And she had decided what the book would be like. Um, and I was really anxious about it because I just thought, oh, you know, I don't know if I've got anything new to say. Um, and so I I decided that I wanted it to be more memoir than um, business journal or business book. Um, so that's why there's a lot of memoir stuff in there. And I, I think my instincts were right because the main feedback I've had is really around my comments about how difficult it was to be a working mum and how difficult it was, you know, my, and all the things that my children um, said to me. And in particular, one story, which everybody that sends me an email that, you know, women I don't know send me emails or LinkedIn messages saying that this particular aspect of the book resonated. And that was my son, I think he was about six I came home from work one day. I was exhausted as you are. You know, my dad was there. You know, he'd fed and bathed the children. I was very lucky. I had a lot of support for my dad. And um, 
my youngest, who was six, said he was so excited to tell me that I was the third best mum in the world. And I was really quite devastated, as you may imagine. But, you know, mums in that moment have to be devastated but not show it. Mm. And it, through my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm assuming it's two grandmothers because they also helped, did a lot of work with my children. Um, but no, he joyfully told me that it was, you know, James's mum and Harrison's mum. And, and it was because, you know, one had taken them to the park and ice cream after school and another one had baked cookies for them, that sort of thing. All things I just didn't do and didn't have the time to do. So I was absolutely shattered. And But he was he thought I'd be so happy to be number three because <laughs> you know, yeah. I guess alongside these super mums, I must have been number – I should be so happy. So I never let him feel anything else. But obviously I was dying inside. And I wrote that piece because by the time I wrote the book, my children were, you know, teenagers and – and they were not axe murderers and they couldn't remember that. They didn't remember anything other than really great times and they were so proud of me and my career. And so I, I was able to come full circle and I think that's the thing because a lot of the women who have liked the book are women in the kind of early stage of the career with young children. Yeah. And so they can read my book and dial forward and say, oh, thank God, you know, because when I, you know, when I had children, I, I worked all the way through and I had a lot of negative comment from people. Um, friends, well-meaning friends would say, I don't know how you can leave your children for two weeks and go to London. Oh, I haven't had a night away from my kids. And you just go, oh, I'm the worst mum in the world. Mm. So I know that that's a, lot of, that's a reality for a lot of women. And some of it is because they choose to have a career and so they should. And some of them it's by, for necessity because they have no choice. But either way, they shouldn't be feeling bad about the fact that, you know, their children, they're, they're juggling basically. So um, that's the most common response. That's the resonant one. Do you yeah. know, it's so interesting. Um, I've now got a daughter who's having children of her own. I'm a grandmother and she's doing the whole bad mother, you know, I, I don't spend enough time with them. He watches too much television. And I'm always saying he won't remember no. any of this, not a thing. No. And I said, what do you remember? You know, how do you feel about me as a mum? And I was always doing stuff. And she said, oh, no, I thought it was really great. You yeah. know, I had a mother who was doing things. You set an example for me that I could go and do. And I said, exactly. Well, that's exactly what yeah. you're doing for your kids. And they'll grow up and they'll be fine. Yeah. It really doesn't make that much but difference. it's a shame that, that your daughter Polly is yes. feeling that? And that things yeah. haven't shifted quite as much no. as we possibly when we were starting out, thought that they would. So that level of guilt, which yes. is reflected in sort of so social and cultural norms and so on, it's it's still there, isn't it? Because we still Absolutely. have this primary male breadwinner, yeah. I know, think it's home one of, carer. I yeah. think it's one of the reasons why we make childcare so incredibly expensive, so incredibly hard to get, such a disincentive for women to go back to work, because we almost feel that it's illegitimate. You know, they should be at home with their yeah. children. That's what they should be well, doing. I think, I think that mm. is a deeply held belief in yes. Australia. But, you know. Now, are you an optimist? What, yes. What do you think? You, you, you must be because you wouldn't be sitting here I'm, talking about all of this. I am always glass half full, glass completely full, actually. Um and um, overfull, overfull. I'm overflowing with optimism. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've always been an optimist, and so I think I think actually to take on some really difficult challenges, you have to believe that you can make a difference. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do them. And you know, sometimes I've, you know, probably well, I had to be an optimist. Let's face it, to take on the chair of the rugby league of you know West Tigers. So that's um, yeah, it's just who I am, unfortunately. <laughs> 
Well, I'd, I'd say <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> but but the other thing I'd like to ask you is how do you recharge? Because when I said overfull, I just I didn't mean you had too much optimism. Yeah. I was really trying to say you you have a lot on and yeah. you are so giving. I mean, that is a very hard thing to do. I'm much nastier than you, as anyone <laughs> who's ever asked me to have a coffee will, um, you know, back up. But how do you do it? How do you keep that energy level? Because you can't give what you haven't got. No, no, that's right. I, I think I have a lot of times where, I, where I'm by myself. And I, even though I know it doesn't sound like it, but, and, you know, if I'm at home, maybe this is a fortunate thing. My husband um, works nights and he's so he's a journalist. He works for The Australian. So he's one of the, you know, night editors. Um, and so I, now that I'm an empty nester in particular, but even when I wasn't, the boys had always been in another part of the house or in their rooms doing, you know, doing whatever. Um, and so I spend a lot of, would spend a lot of time just reflecting, I think, just by myself and I that's how I recharge so I'm naturally you know on the Myers-Briggs scale um I'm just you know I find that I'm not actually um an outgoing person naturally so my my roles have forced that I'm right on the line so I'm naturally um much more reflective I guess than than you probably think I am based on you know my outward, <laughs> my outward appearance, and that so that means that you know I, I do like to spend time alone. So that's how you do it. Yep, quiet time, quiet time. Mm. Yep. So you know, and that could be that I I read a lot, and you know, and obviously a lot of this. If I read media, it often comes via great things I found on Twitter, which is which I'm really grateful to people like you because I often find things that you post. Um, but I but I'm a great reader of books. I love I love books, and um, and that just takes me. I think it just quietens me down a little bit. Yeah. Do you read fiction as well? Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, yeah, I've got very specific tastes in books, but I I really like um, I like a lot of. Well, interesting fiction. <laughs> I'm not a so I'm not a um, sci-fi reader or anything like that. Um, I'm not particularly interested in crime, and I like biographies. Yes, yeah, yes. me too. They're fantastic, and I think we're starting to see a whole lot of wonderful biographies of women. Women, yeah. exactly. And women's place in history. Yeah, really. and we're also seeing novels where we're really looking at famous yep. female yes. figures. Yeah, uh, through a more um, and female um, lead characters, which yes. is really important. In, even in you know in a novel situation, because in a biography, if it's a great woman having achieved something, well, then that's that's great. But um, I, the turning point is really in novels. If the, if there are more in, interesting female characters and particularly lead characters, then I think you know things are starting to change. And female authors actually, mm, that's right, getting actually published. Yeah. Yes, finally, and Hollywood. I think the shift yes. there, watching yes. the Oscar ceremony and so on, and we're starting to see you know a real power shift going on at the yeah. moment, which Thanks. is um, thankfully all overdue. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thank you. It's been absolutely lovely to speak to you, but also inspiring. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts.